Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky team. <laughs> Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. And uh, once again, I'm reminded that... uh, This is a little bit like a Friday show, or it felt like a Friday show, partly because of the guest I had uh, arranged to interview this hour. Um, Veteran actor Greg Ellis has a new book coming out called The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. He has some interesting comments on cancel culture and uh, Joe Rogan and a number of uh, other things. But for some reason, we're not connected up and I'm not sure exactly what that's all about so uh, welcome to live radio folks we'll uh, tell you what we'll do though we'll uh, we'll go back and pick up on a um, recent interview that kind of fits into this uh, Friday Eve theme that I have going on here with author Jenny Elder Moak it's an encore uh, from a few weeks ago and uh, and we talk about um, villains and women in the uh, Marvel universe. So, let's uh, let's hear from Jenny Moe straight ahead. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is the Tom Sumner program, and my guest this hour is uh, Jenny Elder Moke, the author of a new book called Curse of the Spectre Queen, which uh, has been described as female Indiana Jones meets Tomb Raider with uh, 
a uh, Roaring Twenties backdrop. We're going to find out how all that converged in this book from the author herself who joins me by phone. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, now, this is not your first book. Your first book was, uh, oh, kind of a different take on uh, the Robin Hood legend. And... Um, but told in a very different way. And now you've got Curse of the Specter Queen with a Roaring Twenties backdrop. Do you like taking stories and turning them on their side a little bit? You know, I didn't think that I did until my first two books <laughs> is exactly <laughs> that. So I, I think what I really love about it is I love taking something old and timeless and making it feel new and fresh, but still respecting the source material, you know, because those, I, I love Robin Hood stories. I love Indiana Jones and, you know, that archaeological action-adventure genre. And so I think I just gravitate towards those kind of stories because they were told so well in the first place, and I, you know, I kind of want to take my own shot at the canon. You know, it's interesting, this this blends um, ancient relics and the a magical world of mystery. I read something in a release about the book, that I, I read that phrase, but it, it does kind of squeeze magic and mystery and ancient relics all together. Is setting it against the Roaring Twenties a way of making it more contemporary? Well, I think that my initial attraction to the Roaring Twenties was that that was actually a really, that was kind of a pivotal moment in archaeological, in, in real archaeological history. Um, the tomb of King Tutankhamun was discovered in 1923, and that sort of revolutionized uh-huh. the, the whole field of discovery. I mean, that was genuinely the discovery of the millennium. That was the discovery of their times. And it, I mean, people created salons to discuss archaeology. It was, there were all kinds of new digs that were funded. And so it felt like a really, really exciting time to take a young character who is excited and interested in that field and then and put her in the middle of basically like the renaissance of archaeology. So I, I think it makes it, it takes ancient cultures and makes them feel present and makes you realize how they're still affecting us today. But that's also, that was just a really exciting time. If you wanted to go dig for ancient cultures and, and their secrets, the, the Roaring Twenties was really the time to do it. It felt like the whole world was just opening up to it. In researching and putting the book together and, and having looked at that, period and its relevance to archaeology. Did you garner any sense of of why archaeology was so big in that time period? Well, I think a lot of it was um, wealthy British people who that was kind of their or that was their way of like summering, honestly. It was it's really it's 
really curious. It's not something we've seen out. It's such a professional field now that we don't realize that most of archaeology that was done before, say, like the 1970s, was done by people who privately funded their own excursions by amateurs. They didn't have a lot of, like, field of, of study in school for it. It was something that people learned in the field, and they funded it themselves, or they had, you know, donors who funded it for them. So I think that um, it was an interesting time. <laughs> like I said, it was kind of transitional. It was going from being privatized to actually they were really a lot of archaeologists, because a lot of it was just treasure hunters, honestly. And it was it had a real, I don't think a lot of people know this, it had a real, like, Wild West vibe to it. Like, uh, Howard Carter, <laughs> the man who discovers the Tomb of Tutankhamun, he rode through the desert with pistols because he would get waylaid by, uh, by tomb raiders, literal tomb raiders. They were, especially after he made the discovery, and it was, like, the discovery, it was, like, the last big tomb that they found in the Valley of the Kings. So there was there was like a lot of it was it could be really violent and scary in in that time period. It wasn't this sort of sedate finding you know pottery shards and brushing them off kind of approach to it. It could get really prickly, and and yet maybe not as brutal as big game hunting. Well, hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> But you, I mean, you would be surprised. People, because those, that you could, you could still, even today, you can fetch a pretty penny on the, the black market for ancient relics, so. <laughs> well, and I'm fascinated by those kinds of stories, whether it's uh, Tomb Raider or Indiana Jones or or even the, the um, Nicolas Cage movies, the, the National Treasure movies. Um I, I love yeah. those kinds of things. But this is the first of a series, and you wrote a book before this, as I mentioned, called Hood, um, which got yeah. a lot of raves. Um, when you know a book is launching a series, is the writing different than the writing for a one-off like Hood? That's an excellent question. So... The, there are different kinds of series, and what I really love about uh, so the the main character in Kirk's Perspective Queen is Samantha Knox, Sam Knox, and so it's her series is about her archaeological adventures. And what I really love about the series is that each book is kind of a standalone adventure, in the same way that you can watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and not have seen. Raiders of the Lost Ark, and still be able to watch it and enjoy it and know what's going on. That's sort of the approach that I took with this series as well, that if you came into it, there are, there are Easter eggs there for people who know the characters and know their history, and you can follow along and, and hopefully fall in love with them a little bit more every book. But each book is also its own encapsulated adventure. And so I really wanted readers to be able to come in to the series at any point and enjoy it, regardless of whether or not they had read the books that had come before. So I think for people who have to set up big, elaborate storylines throughout multiple books, like, you know, Game of Thrones or something like that, that's a whole world <laughs> of writing and preparation 
that I I was not prepared for it. So I said, let's just make them stand alone. <laughs> um, when you started writing, you had already been involved in publishing at an independent publisher in Austin. You'd worked there for several years. What made you decide to write yourself, and how did having been in the publishing business uh, aid you in how to maybe do it and and get published? Well, I have always loved books and reading stories, and that was part of what drew me to working for the publisher I worked for uh, when I graduated college in Austin. And so I think I was I was always going to eventually get there. I think that was a step to say, oh, maybe I want to work in this industry tangentially. I'm not I'm not ready. I'm not you know I'm not brave enough to take on the writing myself, but let me get to know the industry itself. But I think what it really set me up for that to this day I'm still grateful for the experience. It really set me up for the business side because there really are two completely different sides to to being an author. There is the, the writing side, which is just you and the page in front of you and the story in your head. And it can feel, it can really feel like you just live in your own head, especially if you're in the middle of trying to create a new story. But then the publishing side, it's, it's business, you know, it's, it's moving copies, it's doing radio interviews, it's, it's um, connecting with people on social media. It's a whole different side to your brain. And sometimes I think that can be really, that can be really jarring for first-time authors to come up against a lot of those business decisions because this is their baby. It's their creative heart and then putting that out in the world for people to consume as you know as an entertainment product is a real it's a real learning experience but I already got to see that side of it without having to put my heart out in the world first (laughs) so I kind of came into it understanding that it's it's even when it feels personal it's not personal it really is business and you kind of have to separate those two worlds so that when you're putting your heart out there you're not you're not like immediately letting it get stomped on you know there's a little bit you need like a little bit of of separation so I kind of came into it knowing you're going to have to learn to separate a little bit if you want to survive long term (laughs) more about Sam Knox and the curse of the specter queen with author Jenny Elder Moak straight ahead
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. And if you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it. You're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we continue with the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My next guest is um, a uh, veteran Hollywood actor who uh, has had unforgettable roles in such movies as Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Star Trek, and Titanic. He uh, also uh, was nominated for an Emmy Award for the hit TV series uh, 24. He has a book coming out this week um, called The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. His name is Greg Ellis, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks Thanks for having me on. I called you Tom Hanks there. I was like, Tom Hanks for having me on. Uh, <laughs> good to be here. Hey, I'll take being mistaken for Tom Hanks any day. But <laughs> um, but but let me uh, let me ask about a couple of things. Last month, uh, I had something, just a, a note in an email, uh, part of the prep for us getting together and talking a little bit about your new book, but that you had uh, had some strong feelings about cancel culture and and in defense of Joe Rogan. Yeah, I think Joe Joe had been criticized. I think for some of his comments about identity politics and intersectionality, um, and him saying you know that the Caucasian heterosexual male um, was was under threat and targeted. And uh, I think we've we've got a lot of. Um, in our culture right now with cancel culture, we have this extreme ideology um, and uh, we need to push back uh, and say that, you know, seeing, having this conversation about race, uh, we can separate the, the conversation about historical uh, facts and from what's going on, I, which I see with this critical race theory being implemented in government, in the military and in schools. And I don't think it's right for children to, um, you know, K through 12 to be teaching and institutionalizing racism. Um, I think children as young as five and six, they don't see the pigmentation of someone's skin. We should let the kids be kids and, and leave them to be a little innocent for at least a few years. <laughs> that would be nice, let kids be kids. Um, now, you have um, this book, I believe it came out this week, The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. That sounds a little negative, um, or, or maybe I'm just leaning that way because I've been divorced a couple of times. Um, but uh, I, I, I couldn't help wondering, you, you didn't, uh, in your role in Star Trek, uh, you, you didn't get cast, uh, wardrobe didn't put you in a red shirt, did they? I had a red, a red uh, space dive suit. Um, I played <laughs> Chief Engineer Olsen, so I, the inevitable was going to happen. Um, yeah, the book actually comes out on June June 29th. Uh, the book is out. Um, it's available for pre-order now. And uh, therespondent.com is the, is the kind of hub and home for all things about the book. And look, you know, I wrote the book um, for, a, uh, for a host of reasons. Uh, it's kind of a, a companion guidebook for people going through divorce and separation. Um, I wrote it to make sense of the government-sponsored devastation of people's lives, parents' lives, and children's lives, and the destruction of families and the traditional family. Um, I wrote it to let my children know that I'd not abandoned them and to tell other similarly situated men 
um, fathers and women and mothers that they're not alone. And perhaps most of all, I wrote it to ring the alarm about a broken system and call for social change and family law reform. It's the one um, area, it's the one branch of our legal system that doesn't provide a presumption of innocence. And um, it's a $60 billion a year industry. And there are, there are, there are very corrupt forces at play from judges to attorneys um, and so forth down the line. Uh, and so I'm calling them out. I'm calling out the cartel and exposing them. Uh, my experience with um, divorce and, and particularly divorce attorneys was, and, and I asked a lawyer friend of mine if they taught this at law school, that they start the negotiation of, of a breakup from as far away from the middle as they possibly can get and then start, you know, running the clock on negotiating back to the middle. Yeah, that's right. And Was it like look, that for you, Greg? I think it's. I think it's like it for most people. Look, attorneys are, are, are trained in school to make arguments. So anytime that you put, if there's a, uh, the breakdown of a, a relationship, and two people can't get along, and trust breaks down. If you insert two attorneys, two law firms on either side re representing each side uh, that are skilled at arguing, they're going to posture, they're going to look at the estate, they're going to see how much it's worth, how long they can churn and keep the case going. Um, they're not skilled mediators or arbitrators that want to bring closure to the marriage or the case. They want to prolong the acrimony so that they can rack up the billable hours. And of course, who suffers the most? Uh, the parents and um, the children, uh, specifically if there are children in the marriage. So, yeah, these 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 attorneys, and many of them are unethical. Um, and the state bar associations, basically, uh, which is is made up of the attorneys and lawyers, uh, they write their own uh, code book. So they're literally writing their own playbook to plant their own money trees to build estates from families and people who've worked their entire lives. Now, the book has uh, an introduction by uh, Alec Baldwin and Johnny Depp. Um, w how did you get them involved in, in this? Are they um, fellow victims? And victim isn't the well, right I, word, I, Greg, I, but you know what I mean. No, I, no, I, I, I mean. casualties of the system, yeah, because I, I don't like go. the word victim. I think, yeah. Um, Alec, Alec and Johnny, you know, Alec uh, went through a, a horrible, he, he wrote about his divorce in his book, A Promise to Ourselves, and back in 2015 when this happened to me, I looked in the, in the marketplace of books and there were no books offering uh, tips and strategies and help in a positive way of what to expect from the system and how to navigate through the vicissitudes of the family law system and divorce court. And the only book I found was Alec's book, A Promise to Ourselves. So I reached out to Alec. I sent him an email. And um, he was kind enough to write back and said, you know, if you ever get a publisher for your book, uh, I'd love to help uh, promote it. And I'd like to write the forward for it. So he was he very kindly offered to write the forward. And uh, and Johnny I'd worked with, Johnny Depp I'd worked with on all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And... When he was hit with uh, the silver bullet of family law, uh, or high conflict divorce, <laughs> as I call it, uh, and the magic ballistics of family law back in 2016, I knew what had happened. Uh, it's, uh, right away, I could see, you know, that there's a there's a strategy that's the go-to strategy 
these days for um, law firms and um, and angry spouses. And it's called the Silver Bullet Playbook of High Conflict Divorce. And it is the smoking gun of a corrupt legal system. Um, and, and it's become the go-to strategy for divorce lawyers. And it guarantees the win before you even enter court. And that's what happened. The false allegation uh, of domestic violence um, and restraining orders that are so easy to procure these days. Um, and you, you do those two things. You, you make a false allegation or hearsay evidence. Again, I go back to law because we don't have the presumption of innocence, because we don't have due process. We have these quasi-kangaroo courts where the burden of proof is on the accused rather the accuser. And, you know, domestic violence is, is a very serious offense. It should be, it should be tried in criminal court uh, for a whole host of reasons. Um, which is you're you're fading out a little bit greg greg you're you're fading out a little bit i talk about some of this in the book and um and, and the 60 billion dollar a year american divorce machine that's incentivized to keep that presumption of guilt at the expense of families and to, and to break down families and remove parents from their children's lives. 4,000 children, Tom, a day. 4,000 children a day lose a parent in family law. Greg. Uh, eight hours that the family law courts are open. That's a staggering number, and that burn rate. We, sh we should not be sacrificing um, ch our children's lives and that are bringing with their parents at the altar of attorneys' billable hours. Greg, your um, your audio dropped significantly. Um, I think this is. I think there, it's improved. I think I had an issue with the audio there for a second. Yeah, it's better now. Good. Um. So, were you writing the book for um, for others going through the divorce, or or did? Did you really, uh, as you suggest, um, want to leave a record for your kids that, you know, this this is what was really going on, this is not your fault, and I did not abandon you? I think part of it is to, to uh, lay a record because, you know, when you're in court, you're voiceless, you don't get to speak, you have someone speaking on your behalf, and it's uh, legalese, and arguments are made, and hearings are set. So it's really to tell the true story of what happened to me, but what happened to me is not as important as what's happening to um, so many other parents um, and partners stuck in the divorce trap of the legal system. You know, I, I, I mentioned solutions. Uh, I, I mentioned experts. Uh, um, and, you know, but part of it is a guidebook and hopefully an indispensable read for not only parents or fathers and mothers enduring the grief of child separation, but anyone interested in learning about the gross overreach and unrelenting brutality of family law. My hope is that people don't enter the courtroom, don't get embroiled in the legal system. There are ways to actually end the divorce that don't include the legal system. Um, and that's what I'm working on with my charity, CPU, my new charity. CPU is Children and Parents United, um, to help people, give them the tools uh, to not enter the courtroom and not give the attorneys um, thousands of dollars. Because th this isn't something that just happens to Hollywood couples. Uh, half of the um, uh, divorces in America 
Um, I mean, half of the marriages in America result in divorce. That's a staggering number. Look, if it can happen to, to Johnny Depp and Alec Baldwin and, you know, recently Brad Pitt and Jeremy Renner right now and many other people, it, can, it, it has, it, it is happening and it has happened to hundreds of thousands of, of parents across America. In fact, Western civilization, um, it's, you know, the, the system is broken in Europe, in North America, in South America, in many parts of the world. And um, until we address this, I think we're going to have a. We, we're gonna, we do have an international mental health uh, emergency um, because our younger generations of children are growing up in broken homes. The U.S. is uh, staggering. When I actually uh, took the time to have a look at uh, the statistics, um, one of the one of the statistics that really stuck with me is that the U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single parent households. So fatherlessness is, is a huge issue. Um, and, you know, today an estimated one in three American kids live without their biological father in the home. And these children are at greater risk of having more difficult lives according to just about every measurable metric. For example, they're more likely to misuse drugs, experience abuse, go to prison, twice as likely to drop out of high school and live in poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. So... The, the effects, the causality, the, the, the social impact across the board um, is, is staggering. And in, in large part, I think the biggest issue that we face in Western civilization it are our zero-sum divorce laws. Um, look at social isolation brought on by COVID. Right. Um, you look at these horrible messages of social distancing. We should be social distancing. We should be physically distancing. And socially connected. Uh, you look at suicide rates. You know, one person um, takes their own life every 40 seconds. That rate, I'm sure, has increased over the last 12, 16 months going through COVID. And um, you know, family breakdown is, is a huge uh, cottage industry, uh, $60 billion a year industry. So again, I mean, how can we be incentivizing lawyers and attorneys and the legal system um, to, to break up the family. It just doesn't make sense. Well, and, and the way you describe it as an industry, Greg, I, I, and, and you mentioned that feeling voiceless, um, my experience was that the whole process seemed to be a series of filings and very little voicing even by the attorneys. Yeah, there is, there is a lot of paperwork, documents, submissions, hearings, Nothing really gets done because the system itself has become it's so antiquated and outdated. Many of the judges are dialing it in, they're kicking the can, you know, they're, they're not really addressing the issues, they can't spot parental alienation, they're not, when they hold people in contempt of court, they actually don't do anything and follow through with that, um, and people's rights are being trampled on. Uh, and this isn't a... You know, this isn't a right-left conservative liberal issue. This is about fairness in the system that's broken, that's failing, failing families. Um, and children need both parents, regardless of the parent's present mar marital status. Uh, that's, that's... Greg, the, um, I, I apologize. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet or, or, or even see the book yet. But um, do you give 
suggestions on how we might improve the system? Yeah, but yes, I do. But I, I, I give a lot of uh, time to that. Uh, how the system can be improved, how the legal system can be reformed. Um, I actually have a follow-up book which is available. It's a free downloadable ebook called The Code uh, for people who buy and read the respondent. There's a at the end of the book, there's a code in there which can, they can go to the respondent.com and access. Um, but yeah, the, the, there are many different. Uh, I, I pull from decades of uh, experts and researchers and social scientists and um, legal scholars uh, within so many different areas of family law, psychology, um, and, and try to present some uh, solutions. To uh, to what's going on. One of the one of the things we need to do is we need to train judges better. Um, judges, you know, for the most part, are attorneys that worked in family law, and then they become judges in family law, and they have relationships. There's a lot of nepotism. They can't spot things like parental alienation, um, which is counterintuitive a lot of the time, and they don't see what goes on outside the courtroom. They have no real knowledge of what goes on with the churning and the money. And all of, like, to your points on the paperwork, there's just reams of legal documents and paperwork. It doesn't really get to the heart of the matter, which is, people aren't getting along. And, and it's not even as if there was a lot of substance in the papers that are being filed. I, I mean, they're like these template forms, and you check a few boxes, and it gets stamped by the court, and then another date is set, and another piece of paper is filed. It, it didn't seem at any point during the process to have any substance to it. At least that was my experience, Greg. I think that's most people's experience. Uh, you have these arbitrary numbers and, you know, FL303, FL62943, <laughs> you know, just a lot of paperwork and a lot of uh, arbitrary filling in and they get submitted. And ultimately, it's two sides aren't making arguments. That's, that's the legal system. Um, and... You know, the arguments that are made, uh, they, they aren't, but family law is not answerable to, to the Supreme Court. Um, there aren't the procedures that, that we have in criminal court. Um, so we have, we have these, the, a legal body is basically overseeing our children and our estates and um, without due process and without a presumption of innocence. Who do you think is going to be in the crosshairs? Um, for the most part, it's going to be who's been under attack recently, men and fathers. Um, that's not to say this doesn't happen to women and mothers. It does. Of course. Uh, you know, but Greg, how did you find, how did you find the, the, uh, the time to share your story and write this book while maintaining, uh, what from, from all views is a, a very successful acting career? Uh, well, I prioritized it. Uh, this is a, a priority. It's a mission of mine now. It's become, you know, my calling and a purpose. Uh, because I've, you know, I've, I've read the suicide notes from parents, and particularly fathers, good, loving, present uh, parents who were part of their children's lives and were summarily removed from their children's lives by a legal system that doesn't it doesn't care about kids. It cares about cash. And um, I, I had to make the time. And so. That's why it's, it's become a, a personal mission of mine to speak about this and to um, provide information and resources and help. And it's been wonderful. I've been connected to 
so many amazing people, volunteers, organizations and movements who've been doing this work for decades now and striving to bring about law reform. Um, and the real, the real um, I, 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 for me, when I find out that there are, there are a few people in positions of power who know this is going on, um, they are well aware that this legal system needs reform, but they choose to, to remain silent and quiet. They'd rather just live in, live in their fancy homes and drive their fancy cars and be multimillionaires while families across America are suffering and being broken up and, um, you know, children are growing up without uh, their biological father or mother because the system um, behaves in an authoritarian way. And that's disgusting and disgraceful and it needs to be called out and talked about. Well, kudos to you, Greg, for being willing to share your story. These things are very personal for a lot of people, and, and a lot of people wouldn't be as, as open and uh, as willing to share as uh, you are and have been. What's up next for Greg? What's up next for me is to get this book out. <laughs> I'm down <laughs> June 29th. I mean, that's really what it is. It's, it's getting the book out on June 29th. Um, and uh, making sure that as many people are aware of it as possible. And then continuing my work with my nonprofit, CPU. You know, our mission is to promote and improve child well-being by providing information and resources to policymakers, legislatures, practitioners, and the public, resulting in enhanced relationships and reduced conflict for those children and parents navigating our current family law systems. And developing out, which we have been with the charity, three cost-effective, practical solution-based programs, um, CPU communication, which is workshops and programs that promote improved interpersonal relating, CPU mediation, which is solutions-oriented intervention experts to help resolve conflict disputes, CPU law, which is uh, we provide legal advice to support the mediation process and oversee legal procedures, and um, many of those remedies and suggestions that I talk about in the book to train judges and legal practitioners to keep families out of court. Families should not be in the legal system, sorting out their differences, washing their dirty laundry in, in, in the public courtroom square. Um, there has to be an easier way. There is a better way. And uh, what I'm trying to do with CPU is help provide that as a resource for families and parents and children. Well, Greg, we just have a minute left, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and uh, the book and your work. Do you have a website? Thanks, Tom. Yeah, the, for, to find out more about me personally, realgregellis.com. That's R-E-A-L-G-R-E-G-E-L-L-I-S.com. Uh, the Respondent, uh, which is out on June 29th, the book and the video podcast series, which has been out for a while, can all be found at therespondent.com. That's the R-E-S-P-O-N-D-E-N-T, therespondent.com. And, um, yeah, they're the two main sources, obviously, the social media and whatnot, but uh, therespondent.com and realgregellis.com. Well, Greg, thanks so much for uh, sharing your story with me and the listeners this morning and in your book, which is, uh, as you mentioned, coming out June 29th. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, thanks for having me on. It's All right. been a delight. Take care. That was actor uh, Greg Ellis. Uh, the name of the book is The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Hey! Ah, ah.
<laughs> this is the Unknown Comic. And guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now. And now. And now, too. And even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County. Where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods. And in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. 
MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. The play that I want to tell you about is that Romeo and Juliet. Now there is a real thing. It's, it's a story about how this boy and girl was in love of one another, don't you see? It is. And everything would have been all right for them except that their daddies didn't get along. They didn't. And when the play opens, Juliet's daddy is throwing this big fancy dress ball, and he invited the whole town to be there, but he didn't invite none of Romeo's people to come. And his buddies learnt of it, and they put him up to slipping on a costume and slipping in at this party. And he was a spunky kind of a boy, and he done it. I think. He done it, and he got in there, and everything was going good. Till all of a sudden, this girl, Juliet, come down the stairs. And he was so struck by her that he give a soliloquy right there. <laughs> he did. And it wasn't about being or not being. It was about doing or not doing. <laughs> Well, the do's, they won out over the don'ts. And so what he done, he got her by the hand and started to take her out in the yard. And we'll never know what it was that there's going to do out there. We won't because this fella Tybalt recognized Romeo for who he was and come up on him a trying to pick a fight. But uh, Juliet's daddy, he didn't want no bloodshed right there in his living room. He didn't, so all he done, he run Romeo off. But uh, Romeo didn't go straight home. No, he didn't. He went out and hid in the yard till everybody left the party. And then when they had all went, he popped up and looked around. And he seen this light come on away off yonder. And he says to himself, he says, hark. He says, what light by yonder window shines? <laughs> He did. And, and let me tell you, Juliet step, stepped out of her bedroom window onto this stoop. And uh, she gave a soliloquy. She did, friends, and somewhere in it, somewhere in it, she says, Romeo, Romeo. She says, wherefore art thou, Romeo? And he popped 
walked up and says, I'm right here. <laughs> I thank you. I thank you. Well, as it happened, there was this great big pea vine growing up to where she is a standing. <laughs> And so he clumb up it. He clumb up it, and that is where they had that balcony scene. And he, they hadn't been there but just a few minutes till he asked her to marry him. And that shows that he was an honorable boy about it all. Well, she says when, and he's... Well, he says now, and that shows that he wasn't up there for no light courting. He wanted to get on with it. <laughs> Back then, the reason everybody lived in castles was that there was so many of them to put up at nights. Well, there was so many of them there that they had to keep a preacher on duty day and night. Fella Friar Lawrence was his name. And so Romeo and Juliet, they went downstairs and woke him up and told him what it was that they wanted to do, and he thought that was all right. So he married them right there. But then, don't you see, it was a question of where they was to spend the night, things being how they, how they was and all. And uh, Friar Lawrence told Romeo that he ought to go on home that night. And uh, Romeo, he didn't take to it too hot. <laughs> He didn't. He didn't, but he did. He went on home that night, and, and then Romeo thought that he'd better go off and lay low till things cooled off. And while he is gone, friends, Juliet's mama took a great notion that Juliet ought to get married. And then she was in a bind. She was. Because she didn't want two husbands because she figured that Romeo would be enough to take care of by self. And so she went back down to Friar Lawrence to see what she ought to do. And he mixed her up a drink, and she drunk it, and she fell out across the bed there, and everybody thought she is dead. And they had this big, pretty funeral and laid her out in this family tomb and all. And before that Friar Lawrence could get word to Romeo that she wasn't really dead, some of them mean boys that lived in that town told him that she was dead. And he figured life didn't hold nothing for him. So he went out and got him this big can of light to drink. So he went over to this tomb where it was she was laid out, and he opened the door of it, and he says, Oh, my love, oh, my wife. He did. And he went in, and he drunk the lie and kissed her and says, With this kiss, I die. And he fell out across to that. And uh, he was a big boy for his age. <laughs> he was. And the impact of him, a falling on her, woke her up. And she woke up, didn't know what was going on, and she looked there and seen Romeo a-laying dead. And then she figured life didn't hold nothing for her. And then she took his knife and run it into herself, and she expired. <laughs> she did, friends. And the moral of it is, if you've got a boy that courts a girl that you don't like, or the other way around, if you don't want the expense of a double funeral on you, the best thing for you to do is to let them have a cheap wedding.
This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. it up for today's edition of the Tom Sumner program. Boy, we had a lot of guests to thank today, starting with um, Hollywood veteran actor Greg Ellis, or Ellis rather, uh, from Pirates of the Caribbean, Star Trek, Titanic, and many other credits. He has a new book coming out on June 29th called The Respondent, Exposing the Cartel of Family Law. It's kind of a new mission for him. In uh, interesting conversation. I thought we were going to start at the top of the hour, but we ended up starting after the first break, but we still had a, a very nice conversation with uh, with Greg Ellis. And uh, we filled the time with uh, an encore of part one of my uh, conversation with um, Jenny Elder Moak, who has uh, written some books for Marvel and uh, interesting uh, conversation um, we just heard a little little chunk of it and before that my uh, my guest in the second hour of our three-hour tour was uh, Dr. Ja Gottlieb who uh, has a new book called Ah the Pleasure Book and we started out this morning uh, with uh, the author of the Authenticity Code Sharon Lamb Hartman, and uh, I also managed to squeeze in uh, the interview I did with uh, John McAfee back when he was uh, running for the Libertarian uh, nomination for President of the United States in uh, May of 2016. Uh, Reuters reporting uh, today um, that he has uh, committed suicide in a Barcelona jail at age 75. So. It was a little hat tip and uh, so long to John McAfee, who uh, most people know for his creation of the McAfee antivirus software. And some people know about some of his other antics as well. Anyway, that's Smoking George Winters tickling the ivories. Time for me to head down the hall to the living room. So good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. 
Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.